how the wealthy invest, and what we can learn from them. First of all, what is considered wealthy or high net worth? How does one become wealthy or acquire a high net worth? What is the typical investment allocation of those with a high net worth? Are there investments that only those with a high net worth can access? What professionals do wealthy people use and how? What are the personal habits of those who acquire a high net worth? What type of charitable giving is done by those with wealth? And finally, once you've acquired wealth or your high net worth, how do you keep it? We'll answer all these questions and more on this episode of Through the Pines. All right, welcome to a financial planning podcast with a down-to-earth vibe. Sasquatch listens while re- reviewing his own portfolio. This is Through the Pines, our financial planners, our planwithbaxter.com. We have Rex Baxter. It's named after you. So planwithbaxter.com and Brandon Smith, Brandon with the Y, not to be confused with my own R, Brandon Long. Brandon, who needs more books on his desk behind him. Uh, but the desk looks nice. I like the plant, actually. I really like the plant. That is very oh, nice. You. Yeah. Uh, we are going to be discussing on this episode how the wealthy invest and what can we learn from them. If you have not liked our Facebook page, please do so now at Through the Pines. Follow us on Instagram at Pines underscore podcast. And if you're not watching this on YouTube live right now, subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can catch the replays or just it'll be up there for life. So it is Through the Pines podcast on YouTube. So let's begin by defining what is wealthy what is ultra wealthy or high net worth? And I made the joke before we started, I'm closer than I thought. I'm only a million away and, and not 10 million away. So I, I, I don't know, what, what is, high, is 1 million still high net worth, Rex? That is still the popular definition of high net worth is a million in net worth. So let, I mean, let's just define net worth really quick, right? You yes. take everything you own, you subtract out anything that you owe, and that is your net worth. That's right? a high net worth, one million. Okay. Yep. And so, ultra high net worth is typically considered thirty million or more. Okay. Is typically considered ultra high net worth. Ultra. ultra. What a fun topic. I'm excited for today. This yeah. Be good. This I like to call them the deck. My Deca friends. So my Deca friends, they've got multi. They're ten, ten million plus million dollars in the bank. If they do, they haven't told me. I don't know who they are, but that's, those are my DECA friends there. Can we change it to try DECA? Wow. Or, wow. or you know, something? Yeah. Or well, that would, that would be a lot when it's 30 million in the bank. That's, that's, yeah. that's good. Those that's are good. good people to know if that is, uh, if those, if that's your friend group, that's a good friend group because, you know, they say your income is, what, what is it? Your income is the average of like the closest five people you hang out with or something like that. Like yeah. Right. I mean, if that's your friend group, don't hesitate to hit us up. We're on LinkedIn, <laughs> Facebook, like Facebook live, okay. Okay, wait, I so got that's your friend group. We want to be friends. Yeah. We'll just go ahead learn more. Visit planwithbaxter.com. Uh, well, very good. Okay. So that is the net worth. Okay. But how did they get there? Um, yeah. How do these people create this money? Rex? Well, and so most of them to get to to get to the high net worth of a million, a, a lot of people are there, um, and and so between equity in their home, four hundred one k plans, savings, investments, 
possibly rental properties. There's there's more high net worth right now in America than there ever has been in history. Okay. And so a lot of people are in that high net worth category. The in order to move from high net worth to ultra high net worth, um, typically something has to something significant has had to happen in your life normally. And so either you started a business that has been extremely successful, you inherited some money and was able to leverage that into additional investments or rental properties, something along those lines, or you started really young and and have done a fantastic job of doing the basics, living on less than, than what you earn, maximizing your tax strategies, using professionals to to be in real estate or starting businesses or or you know financial assets things like that and and have been willing to take significant risks and have and have gotten those risks correctly um a lot of the time in order to get to that ultra high net worth but typically you've had to have something fairly safe go right to okay. get to that ultra high net worth level okay well i would assume that if you have that if you have that much money, if you are ultra high net worth that you understand money, but how many times in your practice have you met with people that are wealthy, high net worth, and um, they really need your help because they're not, they're maybe they're not invested correctly or something. Frequently, yeah. right? I mean, you think about the world today and, and different ways that you can get to the ultra high net worth. And so think about, you know, a farmer, right? That may have a couple thousand acres of farmland or ranch land. And now all of a sudden, you know, they're ready to be done farming or ranching and, and the kids aren't overly interested in taking it over. And so he sells that to a developer. And and now all of a sudden he sells that for, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 million dollars. And and he has significant wealth, but he's never had money or, or significant liquid wealth in his life. And so it's gone from an illiquid asset, which he's had his entire life and he knows how to manage extremely well, to a liquid asset that doesn't have any real experience with liquid financial assets. And so, you know, frequently we run into situations like that or they've ran a business and all of a sudden now they've sold their business and they're great at running their, their widget business or sign business or whatever that is. But then when we all of a sudden move it into the financial markets, that that is a realm that's completely out of their expertise. Mm -hmm. And and I think the one of the the things that the ultra high net worth are that, that remain in that category are very good at is is utilizing professionals, finding competent and trustworthy professionals um, that they can lean on to fill their knowledge gaps. I think one of the least recommended strategies is to rely on um, the lottery. To, to become, and uh, but I saw this video on YouTube yesterday, and it was like the dumbest lottery winners of all time. But it but it broke down like lottery winners who lost their lost their full amount of money with their winnings in like the fastest amount of time because they have no idea what to do with the money, which is wild. Yeah coming into it. Um, okay, Brandon, you wrote down some some notes on, you know, how to become wealthy. And I mean, before we're ultra wealthy, let's just let's bring it back a little bit and become wealthy, wealthy, which is million dollars in net worth. Um, some of the notes you have on here is, is live on less than you earn maximize tax strategies. You want to expand on these? 
Yeah, I, I would say that that becoming wealthy and 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 having a, a respectable, good retirement is actually a lot. You know, it takes some discipline, but it's a lot more process oriented than a lot of people think. Right. I mean, it, it's amazing when you sit down and you say, wow, if we just save 10 percent of our income from age 25 on, I mean, you're there. Right. Like it's just that simple as far as maximizing tax strategies. You know, you, you, there's off there's several very simple things available. Roth IRAs, if you're eligible, traditional IRAs, 401ks. And and, you know, we're we're able and there's a lot of different like caveats and what you're eligible for. But no matter what, we can find something like I mean, we can figure out how to utilize at least one of those, depending on income. And it's almost crazy not to. Right. I mean, these are just very simple things. In fact, we've got a lot of clients who do really, really well with their businesses and and they're and, you know, they come to us and they say, hey, look, if things if life continues to go as it's going, I'm going to have more money than I'll ever need. Right. Because I'm growing this business and, and, and the, the outlook is so bright. However, I understand that one you know, shift in business or one change in law or, you know, one of anything, because it's all of the future so concentrated in that one venture could derail that. And, and I don't ever want to find myself in a spot where where I can't retire, yeah. you know, and so although they've got this amazing thing going for them, they'll come to us and say, hey, I want to take some out and diversify it. I want to make sure that no matter what, I'm still able to eat, I'm still able to go on vacation, I'm still able to to live the life that, that I love, but you know, how do we do that? And so I'd say that kind of fits into this, right? Let's make sure we're saving, you know, a good percentage of our income. Let's make sure we're diversified. Let's make sure that our investments are set aside so that we've got enough in, in equity markets so that it can outpace inflation so that it can grow for us for the future. And then, and then let's make sure we fill in any, any blatant gaps, right? You've got insurance gaps. Like, you know, if I were to pass away, although my family's on a great trajectory, if I pass away, like we're, we're sunk, right? Because it was all dependent on me being able to make an income down the road. And if that's not, not there, we need life insurance to take care of that. We need disability insurance, right? To make sure that if I am no longer able to work that you know, we can still eat. We need home and auto insurance. Um, if, if someone gets in an accident, I don't want that to derail my entire emergency fund because we have to go buy a new car. And so making sure that those basic pieces are in place are, are so important, really, no matter what your plan is. With that said, doing those things, that's never going to make you $30 million, right? <laughs> Unless your income's crazy and you're saving 10% of a really big income you're not likely going to go into this ultra high net worth. But I, I would view, you know, the basics as almost like the backup plan to make sure that, you know, no matter what happens, it allows you to take the risks you need to really shoot for the bigger numbers. So Rex, is this something any anyone can do? In other words, if you're not born from wealth, you don't have wealthy parents, you don't know people, do you think, well, it's just not, it's not who I am. It's not what I was meant to be. Or are there healthy habits, lifestyle changes that you can make sort of like, you know, fitness and being fit that you can just implement into your life to become wealthy. I pulled up an article from it's a 2021 article from life and my finances.com. And they listed some common practices of the rich. And if you could just give me your feedback on this, uh, they're frugal savers, take on side hustles or start their own businesses, which you mentioned, studiers and planners of their investments, not just mindlessly putting money into a 401k, uh, more prone to personal growth, reading and studying, 
they work hard, think more, take time to think, take time to think about how they can grow their money and wealth. Uh, interested in feedback and and don't get offended when people talk to them about money and, and what they should be doing with it. And beginning with the end in mind, That those are just some of probably a, a lot of different habits or traits that we could find in wealthy people. What are your thoughts? I think that articles like that are a little bit generic in nature. And, and I think a lot of those will get you to the high net worth and somewhere in between, you know, that one to 5 million, but to really get to 30 million and, and above, you know, it, it's going to be more than that. Mm. Right. It's, and, and can you get there? Absolutely. It's the American dream. Right. And, and so you can absolutely get there. You just need to not be afraid to fail, learn from your failures quickly, and and then make sure that that again that you're taking those calculated risks as as you try and get there. And even then, not everybody's going to get there, mm. but but some of you will. And and so it's it's a matter of a mindset. I do think that you there are some common traits on people that get there with financial or business assets to where they they are critical thinkers they are reading a lot of books and not wasting time um you know watching you know a lot of tv or, or playing you know computer games or different things like that to where they're maximizing the the efficiency of their time but i i do think that that's not all of it yeah. right those, those are components but i think if you're to, to gather, you know, 10 or 20 of the ultra high net worth into a room that my guess is that they have extremely different hobbies, traits, paths to get there um, as varied as, as you and I are. Yeah. So. Well, speaking of the high, high net worth um, individuals, what do their investment portfolios look like? And is that is that something that we can learn from who, who we haven't got there yet? So should we invest similarly to them, like like that they're a good example, or do they invest completely different than most people? Well, com completely different is a big word, but I would say that they do have additional opportunities hmm. that the high net worth and, and, and those areas don't have. Hmm. And so, you know, when we look at investments, we typically break it down into in the kind of four different categories sometimes five categories but but you have stocks or equities you have bonds or fixed income you have cash or cash alternatives and you have alternative investments which some people will throw real estate into alternatives some people will have real estate as a fifth category mm. and and i think everybody in general should have kind of those mixtures in their investment portfolio whether you're your high net worth, whether you're striving to get to the high net worth, whether you're high net worth striving to get to the ultra high net worth. Um, I think that the difference is that the ultra high net worth have addition, additional opportunities typically in each of those categories. And so when you look at equities or stocks, you know, most of us use public equities or public companies. Um, companies that trade on the New York Stock Exchange or trade on the NASDAQ or over the counter, you know, so all these all these public companies, whether it be, you know, Walmart, Amazon, Apple, Home Depot, right, whomever. And, and that's what the majority of us can invest in. Well, when you start to get past the high net worth and kind of striving financially for the ultra high net worth, 
then you can get into private equity, right? So then you're buying interest in companies that aren't public yet. And there's hedge funds that do this, there's private equity firms, there's venture capital, there's angel investing, there's a lot of different avenues to play in the private markets of the equity markets. Rex, do you and, do any of that personally on the side or do you keep everything public or, or can you as a, as a planner? I don't know how that works. What no, are, we can. Allowed to do? And okay. so we, we have access to, to private offerings. We have access to alternative offerings, um, hedge funds, right? We have access to all of those tools as, as far as, as ourselves and, and working with our clients. You know, however, again, there are minimums, right? The, the Securities Exchange Commission, the SEC, has set certain criteria because of the complexities and the illiquidity of some of those investments as to who can invest in different things. And so, you know, some of those are, some of those titles would be an accredited investor. And, and that's, that's where you have a million net worth excluding your home, excluding your primary residence. Right. So we don't get to count the equity in the house anymore. Now it's it's, you know, rental properties, it's financial assets your 401k. It's, you know, business interest, things like that. But you have to have over a million net worth excluding the home or you have to have, you know, 300,000 of income if you're married finally jointly for at least the last two years mm. in order to be an accredited investor. And that opens the first door for some of these other offerings. Now, the do, you, second, do you work? So, so, do you um, manage those, Rex? The the accredited investment accounts. We do, and, okay. and so so we don't. So so we'll work with a third party, right? Okay. So we don't we don't go out and select the you know the private company that's going to go into that private equity holding. We'll work with a private equity manager or a private equity offering or a private real estate offering, or you know, a, a managed futures fund or, or, you know, a merger and acquisition fund, or, you know, there's any number of these different hedge funds that are out there. And, and we'll work with those companies and their offerings to offer to the clients. Right? Okay. Just a clarification. That yeah. was merger and acquisition, not murder and acquisition. I don't know if there's wow. a computer glitch. Just want to make wow. sure. Uh, you know, this is all on the up and up. But yeah, yeah. I've been watching a lot of crime scene movies lately. Murder and acquisition never ends well. So for everybody involved. Uh, I mean, you might get the business for less, but it's not worth it. It's not. No, it's not going to end well. That's for sure. Yeah. All right. Uh, okay. So yeah, that was the accredited, accredited investor. Um, a million net worth, excluding your your home, or three hundred thousand plus married filing jointly, at least two years of that, and then more. There's more alternative investments, Rex. Yeah. So, so just to clarify on the accredited investor, it's three hundred thousand if you're married filing jointly for at least the last two years, and expected to be that or above for the next year. And if you're okay. single, then it's two hundred thousand of income for at least the last two years, and expected mm -hmm. to be that. Um, so the the next level is what. Um, they termed and they they made this change a number of years ago, but they they now term it a qualified purchaser is the next level up. And in order to be a qualified purchaser of investments, you have to have a five million dollar net worth excluding your primary residence, or twenty five million for an entity. Um, if it's a a business or a you know um, an LLC or something like that that we're that we're trying to purchase different things, and so. You know, if you're a qualified purchaser, then again, additional levels of, of investment opportunities open up to you at that okay. point. 
Okay. So. Um, exchange funds, hedge funds, managed futures funds. I've never heard that one, I don't think. Maybe I should have. Private equity offerings and real estate private placement funds. Where Where's that portfolio, Rex? How do I get into that one? So all of those are in that alternative category, okay. right? And, and so typically when you're dealing with high net worth or ultra high net worth, um, you know, we're dealing with asset allocation, right? And so you, you might still say if you're an aggressive investor, you might have, you know, 80% in, in equities, whether it be private or public, you may have, you know, 20% or, or 15 in, in fixed income, a little bit in cash and another five to seven or 10% in alternatives. And so it's that when we're talking about private equity offerings, hedge fund offerings, real estate private placements, things like that, then typically you're talking that five to seven to 10% of your portfolio. When we get into ultra high net worth, sometimes we'll let that alternatives creep up a little bit higher, up to maybe 20% or 25% because we have other significant liquid assets to where we don't mind having a little bit more tied up. A lot, a lot of these investments are five-year, seven-year, 10-year, 15-year investment periods, um, mm -hmm. time horizons on some of these investments. And so you're, you're illiquid for significant amounts of time yeah. when you're going into these. And so we need to have significant net worth in order to make sure that we don't run into a liquidity issue on your personal finances. Well, every investor is different. Um, and every, obviously every high income or, or high net worth investor is different. I saw an article that listed their cash holdings anywhere from like 5% to 20%. Is that ring about right with you? 20% seems awfully high for most of the ultra high net worth that I see, unless they're stockpiling cash for a project, hmm. right? For a major real estate development, for a private equity offering, for for something uh, or a liquidity event, a business that they're trying to buy. That, that seems extremely high. You know, a lot of times I'll see it somewhere in the, in the two to 10%, mm -hmm. depending upon what's going on and their risk tolerance. But when you think about cash, I mean, cash is, uh, although it may be king, it sure doesn't pay well, right, yeah. typically. And so, you know, they, they like to maximize their dollars and make sure that they're working as efficiently as possible. And so lots of times we'll even be, you know, if we're at that two to 5% on cash, we may be utilizing a lot of leverage and, and leveraging their stock portfolio or leveraging some of their real estate assets or business assets at fairly attractive interest rates in order to maximize those dollars to take advantage of other investment opportunities that they have. And so that's one thing that we do see with the ultra high net worth is, is that they're, they're open to the idea for the right situation to utilize debt or leverage in order to maximize their their net worth growth and the opportunities that are open to them. All right, what about some of these other investment thing things, uh, vehicles that maybe we don't always consider like, well, one we do consider, precious metals. Uh, do you see a, a lot of high net worth investors in precious metals? I, I don't see a lot of that. I see, I see a little piece in that. Um, most of the ultra high net worth aren't, I mean, lot, lots of times people go into precious metals because they, they have kind of a doomsday look on the, on the world and the economy, right? That, that if 
if the government ends, we go into, you know, some catastrophic event, then I want precious metals for a bartering system. Yeah. I've got right? my deblooms. Right, right. <laughs> and so, yeah, I got I got my Baxter bullion mm-hmm. over here, right? Um, <laughs> going on, and so yeah. you know that that's where. So sometimes we'll see a small weighting, um, just because sometimes you'll see precious metals that that do a little bit better from an investment standpoint during weaker economic cycles, and so sometimes you'll see a little bit of a weighting in in portfolios. But generally, you don't see an enormous weighting in any of those kind of fringe um, or what I would call kind of fringe investment alternatives, whether that be precious metals, collectibles, fine art, you know, Pokemon cards. No, I'm just kidding. But, but yeah. you know, you know what I mean, right? Yeah. Well, as far as those fi- kinds of fine things. art sounds fun. Collectibles sound, f- those sound more fun. Like, and that's all personal. Like, uh, uh, so who's the guy that just. I don't know, but Jay Leno with his cars. That's what I was right? thinking of. Jay Leno with his cars. That's a collection. Well, he did it right. right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's a significant collection and it's a, and it's an appreciating collection, which vehicles typically aren't. But yeah. when you get into fine collectibles, then they're appreciating. And, it, and it's interesting. I saw a chart. Gosh, it, it had to have been at least a decade ago of the average rate of return on on collectibles, fine arts, precious metals, and it kind of had all these other non-traditional investments kind of listed out on rates of return. Mm-hmm. And and over long periods of time, they tend to be similar to kind of equity rates of return. Mm-hmm. Um, but they certainly have very volatile cycles um, in between those long period rates of return. Yeah. So. And that, that's the key to all, I mean, all portfolio building, whether it's ultra high net worth, whether it's, you know, high net worth, wherever you're at, it's, it's understanding future needs, future liquidity needs and, and cash flow. And, and when do I need this money? When, what money do I need to be able to count on and how much of each, right? Whether it's, whether it's the, you know, more complex products or even simple products, we need to know, you know, if you put money in the S&P 500 or any type of equity style market, if you put money in there, it's you're going to have to accept that there's going to be market risk, right? It's going to move up and down. And and if you do that, like there's there's time frames to that you need to be willing to accept. For example, you can't put money in the market at knowing that you're going to need it in 12 months, right? That's a bad idea just because there's, you never know when the market's going to come down and, and you're going to need to wait three to five years before it comes back up. And and that's also true of real estate, right? You can't go out and buy a house and, and think that you can just unwind that transaction no matter what in a year, because sometimes you can't. Yeah. Sometimes interest rates move, sometimes markets move. Um, and, and so really that's where the planning comes in no matter where you're at in, in, in this life is, is how, how do we structure investments such that they're diversified so that we can move through a variety of potential scenarios so that we see growth and so that we can also make sure that we're always going to have enough to sell out of. I've seen plenty of times where people have a, a crazy high net worth and it's all in real estate. It's all in farmland usually. Or, or, or some, some type of, of real estate and they can't get it. They don't have cash flow on it. They're still living tight. One, I mean, one person in particular, you know, they were just always had lived tight, never had had money. 
have all this land and, and I still have it today. And, and just, but like, we'll never, until they sell that, they're never going to have liquidity mm -hmm. or feel like they have any money at all, even though their net worth is really high. And, and the problem there, obviously, is that there, you know, if you don't have that money when you need it, you don't feel that the full impact of that, of that wealth. And so structuring that, right. So it's all split out is incredibly important. Yeah. Well, life is better with friends, especially when your friends are all professionals, high professionals. Um, and these are all professionals that we should probably be using, uh, even if we're not high net worth, but um, the ultra high net worth people use them for sure. And that's financial advisors, accountants, state attorneys, insurance professionals, private bankers. Brandon, you want to expand on these beginning with financial advisors? Yeah, everyone needs a financial <laughs> no conflict of interest no it, but but it is i mean it, it's um it's it, i can't tell you how many times i've come across someone who's like yeah i can't afford a financial advisor so i'm not going to and they just leave un, untold money on the table right because they didn't understand certain strategies and so i think having or at least having someone who is trained in financial advising who can really who they can trust and 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 make sure they're doing the right thing um, that, that's incredibly, incredibly beneficial. Hopefully people listening to this podcast are aware of that. <laughs> at this yeah. point. Um, but accountants too, right? I mean, accountants are so valuable to make sure that we're, we're using the tax code as efficiently as we can. And it's important that your advisor and your accountant talk together, right? That they're, mm -hmm. that they're on the same page, that they know that one isn't trying to implement one strategy and another you know, another. And, and so you got to make sure those are together. Estate planning attorneys, making sure that that is right now, you know, it's it's important to make sure that that we're, you know, passing money on as efficiently as possible, which that's what's hard about this is, is estate laws change. And and we, you know, might have a certain allowable amount today, and then that can all change in a couple of years. And, and so, you know, you need an estate planning attorney and you need to review your estate plan, especially if you're, you know, in that ultra high net worth, especially, but really everyone needs to review that and make sure that that comes together. Especially if and you've had multiple spouses, I've, I've, I've heard. <laughs> I guess it depends on yeah. how that ends. <laughs> we, we did a podcast where you got to review who the beneficiaries are because uh, one of your spouses just might get lucky. Uh, Ex-spouses. Yeah, yeah. If you don't update properly on those, but yeah. 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 Insurance professionals, you know, you, you want to make sure that you're not hit with some crazy lawsuit that derails everything, especially once you start, you know, getting into the high net worth and ultra high net worth categories. People take note and and there are people, unfortunately, that, that you know, try and go after that. And so it's crazy not to spend a little bit more on, you know, an umbrella type policy or something that kind of catches those those bigger risks so that so we're not moving one step forward and two steps back. Yeah. And then, and then finally, you know, private bankers, you know, using private bankers to help with kind of what I was talking about earlier, right? Help with cash flow management because we don't want to have to liquidate investments anytime we need money or, or, or unwind, you know, everything we're building on, on our investment side just to, just because we need to go out and buy, you know, another property that's a good deal or something like that. Yeah. Rex, what about uh, charitable giving? I think on charitable giving that the ultra high net worth and, and those that are wealthy, again, trying to, to make their giving 
um, very efficient, right? They're, they're still going to have their pet foundations, their pet causes, their pet, you know, things that they're trying to, to give to and, and support and encourage, but they're going to find the most tax efficient way to do that. And they're going to, whether they're setting up their own family foundation at that point, which a lot of the ultra high net worth are doing um, for multiple reasons. Um, one is because you can kind of control and bunch your charitable donations into that family foundation during different time periods when you might be in higher brackets or you might have more profit that, that needs to be sheltered, things like that. And, and so they're, they're going to structure those a, a little bit tighter and better than, than maybe somebody that, that may have half a million dollars and we're just looking to give, you know, $5,000 to a, to a charity to where we can, you know, we may just do that out of our IRA account, retirement account or something to, to offset taxes again. You know, we're also going to, on the estate planning side, we're going to get into trying to pass on as much of that wealth to, and through our legacy to whomever that is that we're trying to benefit, whether it be kids, whether it be family, whether it be a charity. And so that's where we're going to get into a lot of the estate planning for our charitable giving through charitable remainder trusts, through charitable lead trusts. And, and so, you know, a, a remainder is that after 20 years, whatever hasn't been spent down in a trust goes to that charity on a, on a charitable lead trust. It's that, you know, for the next 20 years, a certain amount goes to a charity and then whatever is left ends up going to the ultimate beneficiary. And, and then we're going to utilize IRA accounts to, to do what's called a, you know, at certain ages to do, you know, qualified charitable donations or QCD donations um, out of our IRA accounts so that we're not getting taxed on those as income and then not able to deduct them because we don't have enough write-offs at that point. Now, the ultra high net worth typically doesn't run into that kind of an issue because typically we have enough write-offs to where we're itemizing our taxes. But but it is it is a little bit of a tax game. And, and it is interesting because you keep seeing Congress and, and our politicians changing the tax code on the income tax rates, right? And they're like, oh, we're really gonna sock it to the, to the wealthy by you know, changing the, the, the tax rate on earned income from 35 to 37 or to 39 or to whatever the tax rate is. When in reality, the ultra high net worth get most of their money and income through capital gains right? Or through dividends, which are taxed at different tax rates than income. And so, you know, the, the income tax rates typically hurt the low income and the middle income families more than anything, because that's who has most of their income earned through a W-2 hmm. uh, or through a self-employment business through 1099. Um, so, I, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of pieces there. I think there's a lot of things between the professionals and the charitable giving and things like that, where advisors and accountants and estate attorneys can all be working together so that you're not stepping over dollars to save dimes. Yeah. And, and I think that's a mindset that is interesting because I think as you're trying to become a high net worth person, that your focus is I've got to, I've got to save every dollar. I can't pay you to do something that, that I can and should be able to do on my own. But yet the reality is that, that, you may make more money going and doing it on your own and paying for the professional to do what they do best because they there might be a couple of things that they've learned over the years maybe 
Maybe, yeah. That, that you might not be able to read on some internet article. Right, right. So, and I pull up right. a lot of internet articles. So, uh, <laughs> Brandon, I, oh, go ahead. I do Rick. think, can, can, let me add one more thing on the professionals. I do think as, as you're looking at your professional grouping that's helping you, that, you know, lots of times your financial advisory team kind of acts as, you know, your, to, to use a sports analogy, right? And, and sometimes, you know, sports analogies work, sometimes they don't. But, but in this case, you know, you kind of own the team, right? It's your money, it's your assets, you own the team. As a financial advisor, typically we're the quarterback of the team, right? We're the field general, we're the ones coordinating, you know, what you're trying to achieve, what your goals are, which is to win the game, and, and the other professionals that are trying to help you, right? And so that's the accountants and the estate attorneys because typically the advisors are the ones meeting with you on a more regular basis than your other professionals, right? An estate attorney, you may be meeting with every three to five years or major life changes. An accountant, typically you're meeting with somewhere between one to four times a year as we're going throughout our tax changes. Insurance professionals, typically once a year. Private bankers, depends on kind of how we're utilizing them, if it's for lending, if it's for cash management. And so, but typically you want that financial advisor to be kind of your quarterback, to be coordinating all of these different pieces with you. Okay. Uh, Brandon, you got some, some more numbers. You bet. To, to assist this high income, high net worth. Well, I guess it doesn't always have to be high income, but high, high net worth at least. Yeah. Yeah. So the, this is more just interesting. Bank of America um, tracks um, spending on credit cards versus um, debit cards. And they, they split it up actually. They go, you know, in households under $125,000 of income and households over $125,000 of income. And, you know, over the last couple of years, there's been kind of an interesting shift. Credit card spending for, and this is for households under the 125,000 relative, so credit card relative to debit card or all card spending was down in 2022. From and, and it's been down in 2022, 2021, and 2020. So ever since the pandemic hit, hit credit card spending relative to overall credit and debit card spending has actually come down in the households making less than 125000 um, It's also interesting to note that households making more than 125000 it's actually just just slightly up. And, and so anyway, I thought that was... Kind of, kind of interesting to see those those cultural shifts. I know in the news, and you hear a lot, like people are saying, "Oh my gosh, like times are tough, inflation." And 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 I think you know there's definitely inflationary pressures at work, but I think countering that is people's concern of you know is there a recession or is are there tougher times ahead, you know, especially having gone through COVID in 2020, where people are are a little bit more prepared, right, and and they're being a little bit more cautious financially. Um, and you're still seeing that in the numbers, even as late as, you know, just last year. Speaking of credit cards, Rex, what's the nicest uh, Amex card you can get? Oh, I have no idea. Um, <laughs> is there a platinum? Is there a blue card? I don't is know. There, I have no idea. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I know they've got like seven different just, kinds. Just want to make sure, kinds. you know, you're getting all the airline miles or whatever you need to get. So. Yeah, oh, there's a lot of nice credit cards out there, I'm sure. And so I try not to use them very much, but I do use them on occasions. And if, you know, to, to leverage for that reason, for, for points and yeah. mileage. But 
but I we try not to carry a balance. Just well, like all of maybe that's why you can maintain your high net worth. Uh, so speaking of, you know, how how do we do that? How do we? You made your money. You made you. you we are all now ultra high net worth um, people. How do we keep it? What do we do? Well, I, I think you know one one of the statements that you hear me say frequently is that concentration creates wealth and diversification pre, uh, protects wealth, right? And so in order to get to the ultra high net worth, typically that comes through concentration. Typically you've concentrated your your time, money, and efforts in one area, whether it be real estate, business, or the financial markets. Um, but typically it's in one of those three. And so if you're looking to maintain your ultra high net worth, then typically we're starting to diversify if that's what we're trying to do. And so then typically by that point, you know, we may be involved in businesses, we may be involved in real estate, we may be involved in the financial markets and, and typically all three. If you remain concentrated and you're in the ultra high net worth category, um, again, difficult lessons are learned when you remain concentrated. And, uh, and so we do want to diversify. We do want to spread those assets around that doesn't mean that you can't take calculated risks with a part of it and 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 utilize some of that to not go fully concentrated, but you might be overweight in certain areas for those opportunities. And that's okay. But if you really want to protect it, you can diversify. And then also you're you're going to, you know, typically if you're in the ultra high net worth, one thing that that we see is that they they are they're not afraid to use leverage. They're not afraid to use debt. Um, for certain things. And so you do want to avoid major risks and you want to transfer risks to insurance companies um, through insurance, meaning that, that, you know, whether like Brandon talked about umbrella insurances, LLC policies, you know, different kinds of insurance to protect you from, from litigation, from, um, you know, major things that, that may, may come about. But, but then we, on the flip side of, of insurance, we may want to utilize debt if it's if it's lower interest rates versus the opportunity that presents itself. Um, but we want to be smart about how we do that. We don't want to have to sell out stock at low points or go through a liquidity event at, during down cycles. And so they're going to utilize their their assets in order to maximize the rate of return, and they're they're more focused on wealth creation and protection at the same time as they as they go through these processes okay good stuff uh well we covered quite a bit today on how the wealthy invest and what we can learn from them so a a million dollars is still uh, wealthy uh i guess if you've got that in 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 net worth uh but over 10 million to 30 million somewhere in that range is ultra wealthy or, or ultra high net worth correct yeah. Yep. We, we would say that if you're, if you're in that 10, 20, 30, 50, hundred million, 150 million, <laughs> then you definitely should be reaching out to us so that we can work with you <laughs> yeah. on your wealth. And then there's so. the, like the Elon Musk, Bezos, whatever, the, whatever level that is, whatever the hell they're at, uh, of level of wealth, which is they own the planet. Um, that's another, that's a whole nother, we're not going into that one. Um, how, do, how do we become wealthy over time? You know, there are some personal habits, but as you mentioned, the concentration might get you from um, high net to ultra high net. 
or, or, you know, there's going to be something significant that has to happen in order to go from wealthy to ultra wealthy. But you got to be careful too, right? Because just because you're concentrated doesn't mean it's, it's going to grow. And I think probably the best story, we had a client come in and, and had all their money basically in one, one stock. Mm -hmm. And uh, we did a financial plan, looked amazing, talked about, you know, the risk of it all being in one stock. Like, all right, yeah, yeah. I mean, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have grown, ballooned out to the number that it had if they had just been diversified in the markets, right? It would have had a good rate of return, but not, I mean, the stock just took off. Anyway, we talked about diversifying and said, okay, perfect. Let's get back together. I think they had a vacation or something. Came back two months later and the stock had just dropped off. I mean, just dropped off. They had, And the entire plan changed, right? And so, I mean, it's, it's important to know that, that, that concentration, like Rex always says, number one creator, and destroyer of wealth. And so, you know, what is concentration? That might be ownership in a business, like a business that you run. It might be one stock. It might be ownership in a a ton of real estate in one area, you know, and that concentration, if you concentrate, your odds of extreme ups or extreme downs go up dramatically. And so, you know, if you're trying to get into that crazy ultra, the really high, sometimes that concentration needs to be there. But man, it sure feels good to have a little bit of diversity set aside that you know isn't going to just scream up or down yeah. without you. Yeah, for sure. Uh, thanks, Brandon. What um, The investments, though, sort of look similar to what normal people can do. However, the more money you make, the more options you have or acquire. It, that opens up some doors for you that just uh, lo- lower net worth individuals can't do or can't access. Surround yourself with professionals, lots of them, good ones, hopefully. And uh, there's considerable or there's charitable giving considerations also and and maintaining your net worth for, you know, and how to pass it on to your family and stuff. Rex, what do we miss? No, I, I think those are I, those are all key components, right? Yeah. We talked about kind of the three pillars, which is, you know, real estate and businesses and financial markets. And I think that that's typically how you get to be the ultra high net worth is is kind of focusing on one of those but i think i think there's a couple of things one risk is risk right is it you can lose it right and so you know i don't want people to listen to the podcast and say oh wow if i take risk i'm going to become ultra high net worth and and you may but you also may go bankrupt right and yeah. so um you know make sure that you're that you're aware of the risks i i think if you're really striving to to grow your net worth you know, it's okay to take calculated chances. It's okay to fail. Um, and don't look on failure as a negative thing. Look at it as a learning opportunity. Look at it as, as what did I learn from this and how do I change it so I'm different next time on my next opportunity and, and be willing to pivot that if you see things going in one direction and it's not working, then, then don't be so married to whatever that process or idea is that you shut yourself off from good advice and that you're unwilling to pivot and to make a change in order to try and turn that situation into something positive. I think that's one of the, the common traits that I see in the ultra high net worth is they're, they're not afraid to fail. They learn from their failures. They're willing to pivot and change directions. Um, and and they're, they're very receptive to professional advice in areas where they may not be quite as strong or quite as, as competent in. And, and they recognize that they're very self-aware. Typically. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. 
Thanks, Rex. Uh, thank you, Brandon Smith, both with planwithbaxter.com. For more information, visit planwithbaxter.com. Like our Facebook page, Through the Pines. Follow our Instagram at pines underscore podcast. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, Through the Pines Podcast, and you can see our wonderful, beautiful faces. This has been Through the Pines, reminding you to use yesterday's dollars to finance tomorrow's dreams. 